Welcome to another epic episode of Kazi's Audio Experience. This is the podcast where we're not only going to sharpen our technical skills, but we will learn how to become profitable as filmmakers. And guys, it will mean the world to me if you leave a five-star review and subscribe to this channel for more awesome content. Let's get into it. Welcome guys to another live and today we're going to be talking about three essential tips for every beginner colorist. This I personally feel like is very exciting, especially if you're somebody who's just jumping on because I don't even care. Even if you're not starting out and you've color graded before and you know a little bit about it, I think this is very important because it's going to give you an insight to your mature self. Like if I were to look back eight years ago, the things that if I would have known all these things, um, I would have taken a shortcut. So this is what my purpose, my plan always is when I'm borrowing your guys's time. I want to talk about the only stuff that is happening in my life and is working for me. All the other fluff is just out the window. Like anything that works, I want to bring that in. I want to share it and hopefully it will do the same for you. All right, I'm going to jump on and start with my number one. And no, it's not my hate for the LUTs, but let me just say this. Number one tip, essential tip for every colorist. Say this is your day 15 of color grading. Don't use LUTs or presets. Uh, presets like, you know, you're in Lightroom, you drop on a preset and then you all of a sudden feel like you got the film look, let's move on. You can do that later down the road. You got to learn the rules before you break them, right? So, I mean, you need to understand how color grading works, how every tool works in Resolve, Premiere Pro, Final Cut 10, doesn't matter. You need to understand all the tools before you just jump on and slap on a LUT because this is what's going to happen. It's going to cripple you. It's going to handicap you. As soon as you drop on a LUT, you're just going to go, okay, now I'm kind of stuck. Like my blacks are not where they're supposed to be. My whites are kind of weird. And this is not exactly what the client is looking for. But it feels like climbing a mountain if I were to recreate something similar. So you're just going to drop on a LUT. You're going to move on. So it's never a good deal, especially when you're first starting out. Okay, because what's going to happen is that even if your looks are terrible and you don't know what you're doing, if you keep doing it enough, you're going to start building that muscle memory. You're going to start developing a sense for color. You're going to start picking up on like, okay, I did this and this wasn't that good. And I tried that and that kind of worked. So you can start picking and choosing. And what's really great about it is that it will keep things interesting, right? So when I started grading 20, 2009, you know, around 2009, I got into very fast into like, you know, the what was it magic bullet from Red Giant and slapping on LUTs and all that stuff. I got into that. And what happened is that I stopped grading like I did it and I'm like, I don't know, man, maybe it's not for me because I can't create these cool blockbuster looks on my own. So what's the point? And I just like, boom, I bailed. I didn't use it anymore. It took me a while to kind of get back in. So my point of being, if you don't lose, uh, if you don't use LUTs, you're going to stay interested in the craft of color grading because it's just experimentation. You know, you do something, you go to sleep, you wake up the next morning you come back and you want to try something else. So that's why when if you're starting out, please, if you watch me use LUTs or something like that now, like film LUTs, you know, when I'm trying to go, go for a certain uh, feel or a certain look, different story. Like I said, I put in my time. You got to do the same. 
once you start grading yourself, you're going to get to a point where you're going to feel much more in control than slapping on a LUT. Because how many times do we watch those videos on YouTube where people say, it doesn't even matter, YouTube, Vimeo, whatever. But wherever we watch those videos where people slap on a LUT and then the first thing they do is that they go in the node um, key mode and then they like dial it back. They were like, all right, let's keep it at 15, 20%. Why is that happening? Because they don't really necessarily know 100% what it's doing, but as soon as they slap it on, they freak out and now they wanna dial back the effect and then they wanna do other things. I mean, that's like just slapping a Band-Aid. You know, it's not really, you're not really fixing a problem. But once you understand how everything works, it's a completely different story. Next point, second point right here, I'm gonna talk about analyze frames. What do I mean by analyze frame? I mean, look at some of your favorite work and try to break it down. You know, editors do that all the time, right? We go to film school and all of a sudden we're cursed. Anytime we watch a movie, we're seeing inconsistencies in lighting, like the shadow was here and the next shot, the shadow was here, what the hell's going on? Editing, mistakes, sound design, blah, 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 right? Color grading is no different. So I want you to start breaking it down. Watch, you know, the Queen's Gambit and try to figure out what's really going on. So my go-to resources to do that, number one on the top of that list is shotdeck.com. Go to shotdeck.com, sign up for Shotdeck. You can even use my name if they're still doing that. Um, uh, you know, the Cosman or Kaskazi, and then, you know, try to sign up for it because it is the best resource out there what it does is that you can go type in seven, the movie seven from David Fincher. It's gonna pull up that movie and it's gonna give you stills. You can click on the stills. It will tell you which lens is used, which camera is used, which format it was shot on. Is it digital? Is it film? It will give you which negative was used. It will break it down 1000%. So it, yes, it's better to just watch something on Netflix and try to break it down in your head. It's a billion times better when you can just have the metadata, when you have the information right in front of you uh, of the still. So you're looking at the still, you wanna go for that look, boom, you look at everything else down here and you read the metadata and you go, okay, I got it. They are using a film print emulation 2383. So let, you know, I know um, Resolve has that, let me slap that on and see what I can do. And then you can see, okay, they used a negative stock, which is 5219 Kodak. I know where that is, I can try that on and see if I can create something similar. So you gotta start picking up on those things, start making notes, all that good stuff. So that won't happen unless you develop that second habit that I just talked about, which is analyze frames, okay? And start paying attention. Well, number two, so the first one is shot deck. Shot deck is very important. The second option, a resource to get your images would be YouTube. Just go on YouTube, watch the video and you know, or a trailer, I can just type in Mindhunter trailer season two, check it out and kind of start breaking it down. Go back, watch it again, stuff like that. Now, on the topic of analyzing frames, start paying attention to what I call anchors, okay? And this is what anchors are. When you look at a shot from Joker and you're like, this is beautifully shot, it's the best thing I've ever seen, what makes it what it is? One, you can go to Shot Deck, download that frame, bring it into Resolve, open up your scopes, and now check it out. So what are anchors, or what I call anchors? Anchors are certain points in the frame that we're looking for that need to be proper for our eyes or our brains to play tricks on us and tell us that, hey, this looks right. I mean, this could be a right, you know, uh, look. Like right now, maybe this is what it looks like if I've seen it with my own eyes. So. If my hair stays black, 
it doesn't matter. My wife has pink hair, so her hair won't stay black. But anchors are basically when blacks look black, when whites look white, and when skin looks somewhat proper, anything else that you do in the middle, that's how we sell looks. So, you know, you you watch Hacksaw Ridge, uh, Hurt Locker. Think of some of those movies. I mean, the sky is cyan. Like, the look is so pushed, right? It's out of control. But the selling point is that the black points are proper and the skin is somewhat proper. So our brain goes, this looks right. Like, I bought it. So start looking at anchors, especially when you analyze these frames. One thing that I'm going to say is that try to mimic your favorite looks once you analyze them, right? Because this is the, the this is going to skyrocket your color grading career. Because if you really want to get the Queen's Gambit look, try to recreate the Queen's Gambit look. That's not to cheat or become a copycat. That is to, you know, get in the mindset of that colorist. Like, what is really happening? So I can pull it up, right? I can bring it on. Let's just stay on Joker's example because I've put out a bunch of tutorials for Joker so you guys can relate to that. So say I want to create a certain uh, look from Joker. I can bring it on, the bus scene, you know, where he's in the bus in the beginning of the movie. So I can bring it in. I can look at it. And I can see that it's sitting very much on the yellow-orange side, like all the midtones and the highlights are sitting on that side. When I look at the shadows and anything in the lower mids, it's sitting a, uh, it's sitting a little bit on the teal side. So I look at it and I'm like, okay, so that's understandable. I will do my base grade, which will be balance out my shot, and then I'll go into my look node and I will start making those moves. So, you know, my shadows are sitting a little bit on the... Uh, teal side. So let me take my lift and bring it down to that teal side. Okay, my highlights are more on the orange, you know, yellow side. Let me take my gain and push it over a little bit. Not too much because again, we want to keep our white somewhat clean. So let's move it over a little bit. Okay, now I'm going somewhere. This kind of thing won't happen if you don't have references in front of you, right? Even when I uh, interviewed uh, Jill Bogdanovich, the colorist of Joker, she says that she's inspired by paintings. You know, so you can really like let your imagination run wild here, but bring something in, analyze it and see what's happening, what makes it what it is. Because one of my hardest or biggest problems in the beginning was creating looks because once I learned how to color correct, I just could not do anything else than color correction because I thought everything was wrong. Uh, I just always thought that if I do anything else, then, you know, color correction people are going to call me out and they're going to be like, dude, what the hell did you do? Like the sky doesn't look blue. It doesn't look right. Um, you know, this is not what it looked like. It looks completely off. But once you have these frames in front of you, you can look at it, see what's happening. You can actually stay within those anchors when you're creating these looks. So you're going to do it with confidence, right? So another thing that anchors will give you or, you know, analyzing frames, the thing that it will give you that it's the fastest way to get out of your comfort zone with confidence. Very, very important. All right, so now let's jump into our uh, tip number three. And tip number three is going to be practice, okay? And once again, nobody wants to hear it, right? People are just like, well, can you just, how everybody's asking, like, can you just show us ACES? If I type on ACES big on my screen, will I be Tom Pool? And the answer is yes. Just type ACES and the world is a better place. Anytime you are stressed out, just type the word ACES and life is perfect. But I wish that was true. Unfortunately, it's not. So what do we have to do? 
we have to practice. There is no shortcut. There is no quick way to just be like, yeah, Kazi, but yes, that's good. But can you give me that one thing? I wish. Not true. Okay. So learning is good. Practicing is better. Right. And why do I say that? Because you won't know your blind spots until you execute, until you're in that situation and you're doing it to find out that, oh my God, like, yes, when I was reading all these books and when I was on all these forums, like learning everything, it sounded pretty easy, like it made sense. But then when I did it, it's not the same. Um, so especially if you want to become a professional, you have to role play, okay? And what I mean by that is create scenarios, okay? So create different scenarios while practicing. So when the actual you know, situation happens, you can stay ahead of it, right? So, I mean, I could just be working on something and be like, all right, what if the client all of a sudden throws a curveball and they're just like, hey, we want a, we just want like a, you know, film look instead of like this, uh, you know, commercial primetime thing that you're trying to do. Uh, what am I going to do then? Is there a way to do it globally? Like there is, you know, I can go back in there and I can figure it out. So the important thing is that I won't know that if I don't practice or create these scenarios for myself. Um, so when I say practice, don't just mindlessly practice, put some thought behind it and then have some mission because that's what's going to keep you excited to keep doing it too. So I'm going to go through some of these comments and questions that are coming in. And actually we have some questions, so let me go through them. And it's really funny, everybody's like writing ASUS now because I told you that's the key. All right, so what's my what's my favorite uh, favorite reference monitor? I'm gonna, let, let me just break them down quickly. So obviously my favorite reference monitor is this big boy, the best bang for the buck. Not the best bang for the buck. The best tool the money can buy basically. So the, it's the Sony BVM uh, HX310. It costs just millions of dollars. But it's the best monitor you can have because ever since I got this monitor, I want to grade all the time. I want to just be in resolve. I don't want to, you know, do other things. I don't want to freaking work on the business side. I just want to create because it makes me want to do that. So it is amazing. All right. So this monitor right there, contrast ratio is out of control. Everything that you need. And that's basically the, the pinnacle of like filmmaking when it comes to grading any shows, movies, whatever. Everybody in Hollywood is using, all big facilities are using this monitor. So that's like the top of the line. It's a dream monitor. The second best, uh, I would say, in the category, if you want to uh, be future-proof and you want to have something for SDR and HDR, it would be the Apple XDR. Powerful, man. It's unfreaking believable okay? Because recently I've been doing a lot of HDR grading. So it's like anytime I'm in here, I create an SDR version. I just flip the button, you know, in my OS and it turns it into HDR and I can just like open up my video and see it right there and, you know, figure out how it looks. Is it good? Do I have to make any changes, anything like that? I think they absolutely murdered it. Uh, even the out of the box calibration is pretty freaking good. I still will say that it runs a little bit on the cooler side, just a tiny bit, but it's not a deal breaker. So if you want SDR, HDR, all that kind of good stuff, and then a perfect ultimate GUI monitor because it's 6K. Text looks so good on it that it's just out of control. This will be the all-rounder that I will recommend. Then I will say what Jake just picked up, which is Flanders DM240, which he absolutely loves and I loved. I had it 
uh, last year or two years ago or something like that. Flanders is absolutely amazing. The only problem with Flanders DM240 is that it's based on LCD. So the contrast ratio is pretty low. It's like 1300 to one or something like that. So it's pretty low. It's challenging to like really nail your blacks or, or create dramatic looks. Um, and secondly, it does not support HDR. So it's SDR only. Um, so that's one thing that you have to be aware of. But once again, don't get into the whole thing of like, I want to, yes, Flanders uh, DM240. Don't get into that whole thing of like future-proofing, future-proofing, future-proofing because it's gonna get out of control, right? Like once you get into that, then you'll be playing that game your whole life. You're like, oh, Kazi, uh, I wanna buy the Apple XDR, but you know, in two years, they're gonna come out with F Apple XDR 2, and then in five years, they're gonna come out with Apple XDR 3, so I'm gonna wait for five years until they come out with the third one. So don't get into that just because these, like this investment is necessary. You're gonna pay it off like that. Like my big monitor, I paid it off right away. So I got it and I had, you know, gigs lined up, everything else that I got going on, I paid it, boom, done, like moving on, you know? So you have to make these investments, right? Um, great question, awesome. Let's take some more questions. All right, Jake just asked, did I do any DCP deliverables? As of now, no, I do have a feature coming up that I'm gonna be working on in a couple of months. So definitely on my agenda to kind of look into it and see what kind of things I have to be careful um, you know, of. Obviously, I got the machine, I got the monitor, everything ready to go for it, but I just wanna make sure that you know I'm not missing anything. So haven't done it yet, but I'm looking forward to doing it. Uh, but mostly I'm selling myself as a commercial and music video colorist, you know, th that kind of stuff. But features is definitely fun. We'll see. I mean, it t it's very time consuming, but I don't want to do it the time consuming way. I want to do it like, let me try to get a feature done in five days kind of way. And uh, it's shot with an amazing, amazing cinematographer. It's going to be shot on Alexa Mini LF. So I'm super excited to be working on that. It's going to happen soon. And obviously, bro, I'll keep you posted. Okay, so that's a good question, and that's my FCM fam right here. So I know there are no shortcuts, but how can I improve the speed in which I'm learning? So brother, these three tips that I just gave you, that's that's it, right? Like, I'm not joking. This is, see, there is no one big leap. There's always these little steps that add up, and then one day it's the snowball effect, right? So. Not using LUTs so you can actually get better and have a better understanding of how each tool works. Analyzing frames and then eventually recreating them so now you're understanding how pros are doing it or how can you get close to that. And then practicing, putting it on the miles, like putting in the work. All these, like I'm telling you, they, they sound pretty general, they sound, but like I loaded it with like information, practical information that you can take and run with. Um, I'm not joking, I mean, this is it. If, if I go back and wanna get to a point where I can start grading professionally, I would have done all these steps that I just talked about and in the manner that I uh, talked to you about them. Yeah, so Jake is right. If you're looking for a budget TV, the best TV would be LG. I will recommend just going with C10 because the best thing that C10 is doing that the other models, the previous models didn't do is that they're in, including the, you know, the standardization that's on the horizon right now, which is uh, the filmmaker mode. So 
The filmmaker mode right now is accepted by Panasonic, Sony, LG, Samsung, and a couple of other big companies, okay? So they all signed off on like, we're gonna use that mode. So filmmaker mode is very different than, you know, every manufacturer's own film mode. Filmmaker mode is an actual thing where they all sat and pretty much said, this is how the screen should be calibrated. And they said, okay, so there's gonna be this one mode, which is gonna put your TV into as close as possible to how calibrated screens should be. Now, every panel, the technology itself is gonna behave to light differently. So it's gonna be, it's gonna have a little offset, things like that. But in terms of like the contrast ratio or calibration, if you are in that flagship category, the filmmaker mode, the purpose of that mode is to give you the ultimate experience, how it was intended, okay? So that's why C10 has that and uh, C9 and those don't have filmmaker mode. So I tell everybody that, hey, if you don't wanna calibrate your own screens or if that kind of freaks you out or anything like that, go with C10 because it's kind of doing majority of the work for you. If you put it in filmmaker mode, you're almost there. It looks really, really good. Okay, so this is absolutely not true. Um, uh, I heard the LG OLED TVs when calibrated match up to the Sony monitor, any thoughts? It's not true because I'm looking at it and it's calibrated. Both of them are calibrated professionally. So that is the LG C10, that is the BVM. Especially when you're grading in HDR, uh, the, the difference is pretty substantial when you're looking at the two screens next to each other. I'm sure if that's all you got, it's better than not having it but the difference is pretty massive, okay, between the two screens. Uh, and that's mostly in terms of like the contrast where everything is sitting and in terms of like certain color hues, okay? So it's still very different, but once again, if that's all you can afford, then that's the best you got, then that's great. Like there's nothing wrong with it. But this monitor, like when you grade an HDR, it's one of those things that you just feel like, oh my God, it's almost like cheating because you need this to properly grade HDR as of today. If that changes in three years, you know, sad for me. But right now, it's almost like this is the tool to actually use if you're gonna grade at that caliber. And then the TVs and everything, they work, they work, but not at that caliber. So that's just because I'm looking at it. I have both of them set up here. Not quite a beginner, but I'd love to know how to tackle a oneer or like a long take with different locations. So if you have a oneer like, you know, the movie 1917 or something like that, first of all, you need to pray and hope that your DP knows what he's doing or she's doing. So that can just handle that uh, on its own. Secondly, my recommendation is go going to be that uh, if there is, uh, there are certain parts that you kind of have to, you know, tackle, the way you're gonna do it is through power windows and tracking. So you can do it through that, but that will be my last resort. I will say try to build build your note tree and your grade in a way where everything is just controlled through, you know, HSL curves, your log wheels, and overall your primaries. Like build a look and your and your printer lights. Try to build a look based on that. So then you can just let it go and it does its thing and nothing is blowing out or anything like that. I mean, the only qualifier there I would use would be the video that I just dropped today, which you can check out on YouTube, which is how to properly use um, a, a qualifier to do highlight recovery. So that's gonna be a very, very important video for many of you. Um, and if you watch that, you can apply that on that oneer. 
So then even if, you know, like the light is coming through, blah, 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 you'll be covered uh, because it's not going to make it look weird or chattery or anything like that, the technique that I show you. So you can check out the video and learn that. But that's the way I would approach it. Don't ever overcomplicate it. Don't ever get into like, oh, yeah, but I also want to, you know, track his eyeballs and then he goes out of the frame. So what do I do? And then he comes back, you know, don't do that. You're going to kill yourself. So don't get that crazy, especially with the oneers um, and stuff like that. You know, if it's a commercial and it's one take and you are given one to two days to color it and it's a 30 second spot, 20 seconds or 22 seconds, then you got call to action. So you really are working with 22 seconds worth of footage. You may be able to do all the craziness. But when you're talking about a movie or something long form, that's usually not going to be a case. Uh, and this is why I'm saying practicing is so important to get to a point where you know when something like that happens and you can just, you know, relay that message. Uh, to your director and then have them understand what's what's happening. All right, so Jake is asking, what am I using for HDR and SDR simultaneously, like, you know, to, to monitor it? And the thing is that there are ways to do it. You can set it up through your SDI, so you can have your S SDI 3D uh, turn into two different channels. So you know, like how you can uh, grade uh, in 3D, but instead of using left and right eye, you're gonna set it to like where right eye is gonna be HDR and left eye is going to be SDR. There's a way to do it. I personally don't do it because the way I grade is that it's, it's gonna drive you crazy. It, it's not realistic because if you keep looking at SDR and HDR, they are so different. I mean, think about this, uh, Jake. If you have two screens and you can still see part of your video here, but then this is your reference monitor, this is your Flanders, right? And then this is your LG which is somewhat calibrated, but not really. When you see your image in the canvas window of your color page compared to your reference, doesn't that distract you? I don't know about you. I usually make that screen very small. When I'm actually grading, I make it this small so I can barely see that screen because I don't want to be distracted. I want to look at my reference monitor because there's going to be a tiny bit of a hue shift or anything like that. So that's why it's just not a practical way to do it ever but I have hooked it up the way I just explained to you and it works where you will have an SDR and HDR at the same time. Might not be the worst case for client viewing. Like if the client is in the house and you're just like, hey, I'm gonna play both and we're just on a crunch, like we don't have much time, so I'm gonna play it both and you can see how it is. But ideally, again, like I said, that just won't be a realistic thing because if you're working on something, people will have time to like really pay attention. In an ideal world, you're watching a commercial or a feature, especially for a feature, you would do that. You will play the entire thing in SDR. You'll take a break, go grab lunch. You'll come back, you'll watch the HDR version. And then for a commercial, you can take a short break, but not that long of a break and come back and then do it. The question is, I'm a beginner. Can you give me a heads up to start from scratch? Okay, so there's tons of content that I have on YouTube that can help you with that. And YouTube is smart enough for you to click on a video and watch one of my videos, and then it will know which video to play for you next. So if you just kind of follow that, you should be fine. But my color grading basics, basically I broke up my um, YouTube channel into different playlists, which is what everybody does. But I have it broken down as uh, uh, popular movie looks, color grading basics, quick tips, things like that. So you should go through color grading basics and start from the top and just like really start, you know, getting into it. But the best way to start from scratch would be eventually my masterclass. I'm gonna be putting that out soon again. Um, but with that, you can really go through every single step. Say somebody works in 
Premiere Pro gives you the project and now you have to grade it and send it back to them, what's the process? What's the procedure so you can do it in a lossless way where nothing gets lost, you know, you're getting all the right files, you are grading the proper way, the quality you know, stays up there and then you put that out and there's no gamma shift, blah, blah, blah. So all that gets covered in the masterclass and much more, but that would be something that you can look into. If there are any shots which don't mention which camera used in this shot, you know, what should I do? So that is something that will happen all the time. I mean, forget about you not getting information on which camera was used or whatever. You will get projects where you won't have that information, okay? I mean, there's so many times where I worked on projects, uh, car shows and stuff like that, where they're using six different cameras. They got two different types of GoPros, one, they had it set, set up right. The other one, one was shooting in log. The other one was shooting in Rec. 709. Uh, the colors were completely off. One has the right color temperature. The other one doesn't. Then they have C200s going and they have C300 going. And then they have, uh, again, C200 shooting in one log, C300 shooting in a different log setting. Then you got uh, a Sony FS7 you know, or, uh, yeah, FS7 shooting all the slow-mos. So you're getting all of that in S-Log2 and you get it and somehow you got to make sense of it. And they are giving you giving you a bacon blade file. So you got to chop it up and you kind of have to just put two and two together. You're like, okay, slow-mo, Sony, got it. And then you got to create groups and then, you know, work from there. But that's all I'm saying. You just, This is why you got to practice, brother. This is why you got to do it more and more, even if you're getting projects or not. Say if you don't have clients yet, you in order to get to that point, you have to be experienced and you build experience by practicing. So Rasmus is like, oh no, dude, I'm telling you, like that's majority of my freaking color grading career up until recently, like where I'm working on shows where they're just, I mean, I lost a client because the producer got pissed at me because when I asked her, hey, can I get camera information? And all of a sudden she thought I was being prima donna. I was too cool for school now. And literally boom, cut. Like no calls. I'm like, wait, what just happened? Like, what just happened? You know, <laughs> but that's just something, you know, that's something, uh, you know, you have to keep in mind. What makes you a beginner colorist? I mean, if you don't know how to hand, I mean, there's so many, there's so many ways we can go about it, right? But I mean, first thing is gonna be if I give you a video to grade and you don't know where to begin, you don't know which software to use, that's number one. Two, let's say you know, you bring it into Resolve and I give you a Rec. 709 footage and you don't ask me for a log. I mean, there's so many different like levels to that because I can tell if you're an amateur colorist, if I just give you my hand, do my footage and what kind of questions you're gonna ask is gonna tell me if you're a beginner colorist or not. If you don't know how to properly balance your footage, you know, you're, you're a beginner colorist. If you're dealing with shot matching, which by the way is tough, even for a pro colorist, that's like one of the harder things that you have to deal with. Uh, the thing that's just not fun, but if you can't really match your shots, you're a beginner colorist. If you don't know how to work with multiple different cameras on the same shoot, you're not, you know, you're a beginner colorist. If you don't know properly what anchors are when you create your looks, like, I mean, your shadows are all over the place, your highlights are all over the place, all that kind of stuff, you're a beginner colorist. So, I mean, there's all these things. Like, if you don't understand all the different log profiles per camera, which one does what, I mean, maybe now I'm just like getting ahead of myself because that's, you know, if you're a beginner colorist and you do your job, well, you don't need to know that much. You don't need to get to that level. But still, if you, if I give you a, you know, a 30 second spot to grade and you spend four hours on one shot, you're a beginner colorist. And 
why am I saying this, especially the last one? Because I've done it. I've done it. When I was starting out in the beginning, like I would be given a a shot, you know, uh, here's the commercial, go grade it. And then I'll just get on it. And I'm not joking. Like three hours later, they'll walk in and they'll be like, what's going on? And I'll be like, well, you know, setting up some looks, you know, it's cool. Like, I'll just hit you up in three, four hours when I have something to show you. You're a beginner colorist. If all those things are happening, and why was that happening? Because I wasn't asking the right questions. Again, it goes back to that. Why wasn't I, wasn't I asking uh, the right questions? Because I didn't put in the hours. I didn't have enough practice. I didn't create enough scenarios in my head to anticipate. That's why, you know, three essential tips. Like, all the answers are right here. All right, so now we're kind of just tapping into a different conversation, but I will answer it just to kind of, you know, bring more value here. So what is the best way to get your first client, I mean, you have to put out work, like for them to, one, discover you, two, even if you reach out to them and then they discover you, click through your links and all that, it has to back up, right? Because there's there's so many, there's so much talent out there right now, it's unreal. There's too much talent out there and people are good. People are good. Like people like Jake, I'm jealous of him because he's so young. And he's got a great head on his shoulder. He's running his own company. He's making all the right moves. And he's got 13 years on me. You understand what I'm saying? So this is what we're dealing with right now. Like there's the caliber of, you know, talent is just next, next level. So instead of like sitting back and staying in the analysis paralysis, like what, you know, how can I get the first client? Well, don't think like that. Think like, how can they find you? Like, think from that perspective, flip it. Like, there is no careerbuilder.com anymore for us to find work, okay? We need to go and, you know, get ourselves to a point where we get discovered. And the beautiful thing is that we got free advertising. That was not the case when I first moved here to California. I mean, 2010, I think Instagram came out in 2011. So when I moved to California from Chicago and I'm applying for these jobs, I'm actually on, you know, monster.com. That was a different scenario. Okay, now it's not like that. Like now you can have your, I mean, check out Pratik, uh, Mahesh, check out Jake's profile, check out, you know, Daniela Rodriguez's profile, check out Gabby's profile, check out Nick's profile, Fat Dance. Look at these guys' profile and the caliber of work that they're putting out. Uh, look at Gian Tommaso's website or uh, Instagram. I want to hire all of these guys to work for me. Okay, it, it, they make it so easy that when I'm looking for colorist, I just go to Instagram. Even if I go to the color grading hashtag, their stuff will pop up because it's good quality and they're consistent. They're posting every day or every other day. You can click on their post and go, I want to work with this guy. Let's hit him up. Let's DM this guy and see what's what, you know. So that's all I'm saying. Like you need to become that, you know, so and you won't become that. If you keep asking, you know, if you don't even get started. So keep going. I'm not saying you particularly. I'm just saying it generally that, you know, you guys need to put in the work. Again, going back to the three essential tips here, you need to do all that to be in a place where you get discovered or when you reach out to someone, they can see and go, okay, this person got some juice. Like, let's work with that person. Somebody's asking micro panel or mini panel. Micro is the $1,000 or $1,200 uh, panel, and then the mini is around $3,000, a little over $3,000 if you pay taxes uh, on top of it. Personally, mini is the way to go. And again, Jake can you know chime in and tell you how amazing it is. Personally, I think it's the best bang for the buck. Now, I got the biggest 
bro right here. It is great. It's amazing. And I don't regret it for half a second. But now when I look back and think about what the mini was, I mean, wow. They could have sold that mini for eight or 10,000 because this guy here is a little over 30 grand. So they could have sold mini for around 10K and it would still be justifiable. And for mini to be at $3,000 mark, I mean, it's the gateway drug, man. That's what happened to me. I used the mini and it, then my decision to get the advance was like that. So now they had a customer and then the LTV on that customer is out of control because boom, I just like, you know, 10 x it and I got this and then I passed on my mini to actually Jake. But I would say mini, if you are getting enough work where you can justify it. Okay, let's put it this way. If 90% of your work is cinematography, editing, directing, that kind of stuff, and it's not really color grading, then maybe it's, it's a bit much to drop three, four grand on a panel. If you think that you're swimming in that Kool-Aid, you're gonna be doing a lot more, your, your quality is gonna be going next level, you can charge more, you got a whole game plan, go for a mini. Otherwise, micro is amazing. Again, best bang for the buck. What you get with micro, it's out of control. Micro could have been $3,000, mini could have been $8,000. It still would have just been justifiable, but uh, either options are good. My choice would be with the mini, especially if you can justify it. Uh, so the question is CST or LUTs? If you go through my course, you're gonna find out that it's very interesting. There's gonna be times when, there are actual times when LUTs, uh, the conversion LUTs might work better. You'll be surprised. So there are those times, but CST in its nature is just superior because it is not really, you're not throwing anything that's baked onto your look or on your log footage. It is all like mathematical and it's all doing its like jiggery pokery like in the world of DaVinci Resolve. So when you're using color space transform, there's that beauty that's happening. So I would, I usually prefer CST, but like I said, if you go through my course, you're gonna find out, you're gonna be blown away. You're gonna see for yourself that there are times when uh, uh, LUTs are gonna work better. All right, so somebody asked like, which is uh, the best laptop for new colorist? And I mean, you guys have seen my video on the M1, uh, the new MacBook Pro 13 inch M1. Uh, and you've already seen pretty much everybody else's, like all the tech uh, dudes that put out videos or girls put that put out videos uh, they just are, everybody's blown away by how powerful this thing is, specifically when it comes to uh, DaVinci Resolve. Now, I will say, I've seen some terrible performance uh, coming out of the M1 chip when it comes to Premiere Pro. Uh, you hit export and people are saying uh, a 30-minute video is taking like seven hours. So I can't speak on any other program. I can only speak on DaVinci Resolve. Uh, when I was home, you know, taking care of my mom, I took my laptop with me and I had zero complaints. I think it performed 100 times better than expected. I expected a lot and then it beat my expectations by 100%. So I think for what you get for the money is, I don't even know like how that happened. It just blows my mind and I cannot wait till they come out with the M1X chip in the Mac Pro. Um, I'm picking it up. Even if I have to sell this guy and lose like five grand, it's just gonna probably happen because I mean, what they did uh, with the M1, it's like next level. So I will highly recommend looking into that. Uh, the MacBook Pro 
M1 chip, the latest one. I think so far they only have 13 inch. Eventually they're gonna be coming out with 16 and 15 inch models. That's a tough one. So best color grading movie according to me. I don't know. I mean, I, I must say, I, I'm just gonna throw some names out there. I'm gonna start off with Mad Max. I mean, it's the cliche. That's like you ask somebody their favorite soccer team and they say Barcelona, but the truth is it's a cliche for a reason. So I'm gonna say Mad Max. I mean, I, I know the kind of work Eric does and the dude is just a madman. I mean, recently he's been putting out breakdowns on his site, Eric Whip, uh, or on his Instagram, and it's just the most beautiful thing to see. Okay, this guy is just, a mad scientist when it comes to color grading. And what he did to achieve that look, I mean, that's not something that you just, that's not something that you just do with your wheels. I mean, it just goes beyond that. So I would say Mad Max is up there pretty high. Uh, absolutely love it. Uh, otherwise, I mean, you know, 300 had an impact on me. And, you know, Stefan is another guy, you know, the, the founder of Company 3. I mean, his grading is my favorite because he's so unapologetic. I mean, he just does it because he's literally like, hey, I'm the freaking king of the world. I'm the founder of Company 3. I do me. I don't care. And I absolutely love it. Like, he did uh, the grade for all the Bad Boys movies, uh, especially the new one, too. He did the movie 300. Um, all the Transformers movies. So if you really think about it, when we think about color grading movements, like where certain looks became what they became, like the teal and orange or whatever. I mean, he's the creator of that. He's the originator of that. So I absolutely love his work. I mean, Tom Poole has such a gentle, like delicate touch in all his work. Um, you know, I mean, so Euphoria, all that, like anything that you think of, like, you know, from him, it just has such a soft touch and it's just done right. There's so much information in the image. Nothing is like lacking yet it's just so easy on your eyes. Um, so a lot of stuff from them, you know, and uh, just like good cinematography is good cinematography. Anything from Deacons, I mean, Blade Runner is impeccable. I mean, there's just nothing better, you know? So there's so many different ones. That's why I said this is the hardest question to answer because I'm gonna mention all these movies and then I'm gonna move on to the next question and I'm gonna think and go, why didn't I mention this one, that one, and the other one, you know? So uh, that's what I think. This is probably the best question, and we're going to end it on this. What's the best lesson that you've learned as a colorist over the past year? Or let's just say over my career. This is what I've learned. Clients, when you're working with clients, don't give them an inch. Don't give them a chance. What I mean by that is if you think that there's going to be something in your grade that's going to open up a conversation or an explanation, that is gonna require an explanation, not open up a conversation, is gonna require an explanation, fix it. Fix it before you send it. Because I am telling you, once you set that precedent where they just go, yo, what's up with the black points? They're inconsistent. And you go, well, this is just a first pass, I'm fixing it, blah, blah, blah. You're done. That will never go away. Like you will be put in that bucket for the rest of your career with that client. Okay, once again, based on all true experiences. Uh, one client, I was just like super happy feet. Those days I was crazy about the bleach bypass look. I was all about it. So I got overly excited and shared that with my creative director. I'm like, dude, you know, what do you think? He's like, you know, this is looking good, dude. And I'm like, 
Dude, I'm telling you, I'm doing this thing called bleach bypass and this is how you create it. And it's like desaturated highlights and blah, blah, blah. He was like, yo, go back, go back, go back. What are you talking about? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, come to think of it. And it just went from there. Like my whole relationship with that client was just insane. I talked too much, got too excited and started, you know, thinking out loud basically, and then got too technical and, uh, gave them the opportunity to start looking at things that is just none of their business. He looked at it and he said he loved it first. But then as soon as I over explained myself, that's what happened. So just put your head down, work and have a great personality. Be that guy that they want to have a drink with, like be that person, but just learn when to kind of just shut up and do your thing and uh, just talk less, like let them tell you what they think. But don't have an obvious mistake or something obvious that's going to jump out and once again is going to require an explanation because if that happens, you're done. Move on to the next client. So on that note, guys, this was amazing. Thank you so much for everybody's participation. Jake, love you for just dropping in all the comments and keeping it going. Uh, love everybody else that is on here and just helping out, uh, keeping this community healthy. Gabi, love you, brother. You know that. Next time I'm in Chicago, we're hanging out. And on that note, just remember three tips. Let's just do a quick, you know, recap once again. Don't be a LUT bitch. Number one, analyze frames and then try to recreate them. Three, practice, practice, practice. I'll see you guys later. Much love. And guys, thank you so much for sticking around till the end. Please leave a five-star review and make sure you're following this channel. I will see you in the next episode. 